You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Any desk confirms a serious breach. Clorox and Johnson Controls file cyber incidents with the SEC. There's already a potential Apple Vision Pro kernel exploit, a $25 million deepfake scam. Akamai Research hops on the Fritz Frog botnet. U.S. sanctions Iranians for attacks on American water plants. Commando Cat targets Docker API endpoints. Pennsylvania courts fall victim to a DDoS attack. A new leader takes the reins at U.S. Cyber Command and the NSA. Our guest is Dr. Heather Monthy from N2K Networks with insights on the White House's recent easing of education requirements for federal contract jobs and remembering one of the great cryptology communicators. It's Monday, February 5th, 2024. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is your CyberWire Intel Briefing. Late last Friday afternoon, remote software company AnyDesk confirmed a significant security breach in its systems. Unauthorized access was detected during a routine security audit, leading to the exposure of a substantial amount of source code and code signing certificates. The company has engaged the services of cybersecurity experts CrowdStrike and is working closely with authorities to address the situation. They say it is notably not related to ransomware. In an effort to mitigate risks, AnyDesk has revoked and is replacing compromised security certificates and systems. Additionally, they have reset passwords for their web portal, advising customers to change their credentials as a precaution. The breach led to a service interruption with a four-day outage at the end of January, where users were unable to log into the AnyDesk client. Despite this disruption, the company assures that there is no evidence of end-user devices being affected. AnyDesk serves over 170,000 enterprise customers globally, including major brands like Samsung and Comcast. Following this disclosure, some observers have criticized the company for what's been perceived as a Friday afternoon news dump, an attempt to downplay the story by releasing it just before the weekend. Continuing with breach disclosures, Two major companies recently filed SEC disclosures outlining significant financial losses due to cyber incidents. Clorox, the cleaning product manufacturer, faced a major operational disruption from an attack last August, leading to $49 million in expenses by December of 2023. 
The costs primarily involve third-party consulting, IT recovery, forensic experts, and additional operational costs due to the disruption. Clorox anticipates reduced future expenses and has not yet received insurance proceeds for the incident. Meanwhile, Johnson Controls, a building management conglomerate, reported a $27 million expense in the last quarter of 2023 following a confirmed ransomware attack in September. The company expects further expenses in fiscal 2024, mainly in the first half, for response and remediation efforts. The attack disrupted their billing systems, but is not expected to materially impact net income, with a substantial portion of the costs likely covered by insurance. Joining me is Brandon Karp. He is an executive producer here at N2K CyberWire, also a former naval officer who spent time at Cyber Command. Brandon, welcome back. Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me again. So this story appears at first blush to be simple reporting here, and we've seen a number of these over the past couple of weeks, but there's some nuance here that you want to capture. Yes, most definitely. So big picture with the SEC and these types of filings is that the SEC implemented a new set of rules in December of 2023 for public companies, which now requires them to report any breach that they identify that's uh, material to their business operations within four days. Um, And the business would file that with a form called the 8K form, which is a notification to investors of any Mm. material information to the business. The other part of this rule change was that companies are now required to report information about their cybersecurity programs, uh, successes, failures, uh, processes, maturity in their annual 10K filing to the SEC as well. Uh, We haven't seen any of those yet, at least not to my knowledge, since the rule just went into effect in December. We have seen a few of these 8K filings in the last month, one from Microsoft, one from Hewlett-Packard. But this is a 10Q filing. So this is the quarterly filing. And this Mm -hmm. is the first one, to my knowledge, that has included this much detail about a cybersecurity incident, response and remediation, financial impacts, operational impacts, the uh, inclusion of insurance information and recovery information, and then the future outlook. So this 10Q, this uh, quarterly filing, is probably an indication of what we can likely see in some of the annual filings that will be coming out this year from these public companies. This information is very relevant to any cybersecurity professional, CISO, CSO, vice president of security who's working at a public company, just to give you a sense of the type of information you might want to start including in these filings. And it's your sense that, that CISOs are sitting up and taking notice at this? Most definitely they have to. Um, now, the part of the organization that is actually submitting this is typically the uh, the part of the organization that works for the chief financial officer, but they don't have that type of uh, cybersecurity program information. So the chief security officers, the CISOs, the other people within the security organization will have to provide this type of information to the CFO's office uh, to make sure that they're filing the right information uh, and doing it in a way that's auditable, that's clear, and that meets the SEC's guidelines. Now, this is going to become a huge part of the role of any security organization at a public company. Brandon Karf is executive producer here at N2K CyberWire. Brandon, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Apple launched their much-anticipated spatial computing platform, Apple Vision Pro, last week. And now, Cyber News reports that Joseph Rashinandran an MIT PhD student, revealed a potential kernel exploit for the device. 
The exploit triggers when the device crashes, switching to full pass-through and prompting a reboot. Kernel exploits, which are coveted by attackers for their ability to bypass security and execute malicious code, are serious vulnerabilities. Ravishandran is known for identifying the Pac-Man attack on Apple's M1 CPU, and he highlighted this shortly after Apple's recent software update aimed at patching security flaws. Apple and Ravishandran have yet to comment on the exploit revelation. A finance worker at a multinational firm was deceived into transferring $25 million due to an elaborate deepfake scam, as reported by Hong Kong police. The worker attended a video call, believing he was interacting with the company's CFO and other staff members, but they were all deepfake simulations. Initially skeptical due to a suspicious email discussing a secret transaction, the worker was convinced after the video call, where the participants appeared and sounded like real colleagues. This led to him remitting approximately $25.6 million. Hong Kong police, who have made six arrests related to similar scams, revealed that deepfake technology has been used in multiple instances to deceive facial recognition systems for fraudulent loan applications and bank account registrations. This scam was uncovered when the employee verified the transaction with the company's head office. The Fritz Frog botnet, active since 2020, has evolved to exploit the log-for-shell vulnerability, targeting not just internet-facing applications but also internal networks. Researchers at Akamai detailed this shift in the botnet's behavior. Fritz Frog, known for compromising SSH connections to deploy crypto miners, now scans system files on infected hosts to identify and attack vulnerable Java applications. Dubbed Frog for Shell, this campaign leverages the Log for Shell bug found in the Log for J web tool, which led to a major global patching effort starting in 2021. Despite these efforts, researchers are still finding vulnerable systems two years later. Fritz Frog has been particularly notorious, compromising over 500 servers, including those in banks, universities, and medical centers. It had a period of dormancy but resurfaced in 2022. Akamai's research reveals over 20,000 Fritz Frog attacks affecting more than 1,500 victims. This botnet poses a unique risk by exploiting unpatched internal machines, which were initially considered less vulnerable and so often neglected. The malware targets all hosts within a network, exposing even patched internet-facing applications to risk if any part of the network is breached. The botnet has also developed new capabilities, including privilege escalation and cyber defense evasion tools. Researchers anticipate that Fritz Frog will continue to evolve, possibly integrating more exploits. In 2022, about 37% of the infected nodes were in China, but the victims were globally distributed. There's speculation that the Fritz Frog operator might be based in China or is attempting to appear so. The U.S. has sanctioned six Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps officials for cyber attacks on American water plants last year. These attacks come amidst heightened tensions following a drone strike in Jordan that killed three U.S. soldiers, for which an Iranian-backed militia is blamed. The U.S. Treasury's undersecretary emphasized the seriousness of targeting critical infrastructure and vowed to hold perpetrators accountable. 
the IRGC-affiliated Cyber Avengers targeted several U.S. water systems, including one in Pennsylvania, exploiting weak cybersecurity like default passwords. While the attacks were considered low-level, they raised concerns about the vulnerability of U.S. water systems. Federal officials, including Pennsylvania senators and a congressman, have urged for a full investigation. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency warns that countries like Iran are increasingly investing in cyber capabilities, posing significant threats to U.S. infrastructure. Researchers at Cato Security have discovered a new malware campaign named Commando Cat targeting Docker API endpoints. This is the second Docker targeting campaign in 2024, following a recent report on the malicious use of the Nine Hits Traffic Exchange application. Commando CAD is a cryptojacking campaign exploiting Docker for initial access, using the server to access the host's file system and execute multiple interdependent payloads. These payloads aim to establish persistence, enable backdoors, steal cloud service provider credentials, and run a cryptocurrency miner. The malware exhibits unique evasion techniques, including a rare process hiding mechanism using the HID process hider script instead of more common rootkit kernel modules. It also employs a Docker registry black hole to prevent other attackers from accessing the compromised system. Commando Cat functions as a credential stealer, a stealthy backdoor, and a cryptocurrency miner, making it a versatile threat. Its payloads bear similarities to those used by other threat actors, particularly Team TNT, suggesting Commando Cat could be a copycat group building upon Team TNT's techniques. The sophistication, redundancy, and evasion tactics of this malware make it a challenging threat to detect. Over the weekend, the website of the Pennsylvania State Courts Agency experienced a cyber attack which disabled several online systems. This incident was confirmed by officials on Sunday night who noted that the attack did not compromise any data. Chief Justice Deborah Todd says the attack is being investigated by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the FBI. She described the incident as a denial-of-service attack, a method where attackers overload a system with traffic, causing it to crash and denying access to legitimate users. The agency, known as the Administrative Office of Pennsylvania Courts, has not yet identified the attackers or their motives, and it remains unclear whether their cybersecurity measures were effective or if any ransom was demanded. Key online services affected include the docket sheets and an electronic document filing portal. Despite these disruptions, the state's courts continued to operate. After six years, Army General Paul Nakasone has passed the leadership of U.S. Cyber Command and the National Security Agency to Air Force General Timothy Hogg. The change of command ceremony held at NSA's Morrison Center occurs amidst increasing challenges in digital warfare and concerns over election security against potential foreign hacking. Nakasone praised for his leadership during a period of heightened global challenges and low morale following security breaches introduced significant changes, including the Persistent Engagement Doctrine and the establishment of the Cybersecurity Directorate at NSA. Hogg, previously Cyber Command's deputy and head of the Air Force's Digital Warfare Branch, is recognized as highly qualified for leading these agencies. 
The ceremony, attended by top national security officials, highlighted the evolving importance of technology in national security, with Hogg expressing enthusiasm for future challenges and opportunities. Coming up after the break, my conversation with Dr. Heather Munthy from N2K Networks with insights on the White House's recent easing of education requirements for federal contract jobs. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The Biden administration recently announced updates to their federal hiring standards for folks seeking jobs in cybersecurity. Joining me to discuss this is my N2K colleague, Dr. Heather Monthy. She is a cyber workforce consultant here at N2K. Heather, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. So give us a rundown here of what has gone into this adjustment of the federal hiring standards. Well, I think that there's been a lot of talk over the last 10 or so years about how do we get more people involved in cybersecurity and how do we help fill this cyber workforce gap? One thing that has been identified is that the the bachelor's degree has sort of been this stopping point for a lot of people to break into the field. And there's a lot of different roles within cybersecurity that don't necessarily require a bachelor's degree to get started in that position. So I know that the federal government has been talking about this for many years, and I'm glad to see that there's some progress being made into opening up opportunities to work in the cybersecurity profession for people who may have already had some really good success in another career, but don't necessarily meet the bachelor's degree requirements and want to get into this field. 
Do we have many specifics yet here of, of what sorts of positions this could be affecting? I haven't read anything yet with regards to the specifics, but I think if you look at any profession, any burgeoning profession, and I say cybersecurity is is a relatively new field compared to, say, the medical industry, where mm. we don't have very well clearly defined paths with how to get into that field yet. And the medical industry 150 years ago was very much the same way. We didn't have these paths of how do you become a surgeon? How do you become a nurse? How do you become a person who works at the health insurance company, right? And I think cybersecurity is that same type of a field where there's a lot of different opportunities in a lot of different areas. It's not just pen testing. It's not just this one thing. Much like the medical profession, there's going to be fields that require advanced training and advanced skills. And then there's going to be professions that you can you can jump right in and get started without four years of higher education. Who do you suspect this is going to affect here? I mean, people who are aspiring to get into the cybersecurity business here, I, I would imagine there's a, a range of folks who could take advantage of this. Yeah, I think there's a couple different groups of people. I think there's a lot of young people who have really started questioning the value of higher education and figuring out, you know, if I know how to do a skill, do I really need to go to college and, and get a piece of paper to prove that I know how to do it when I have other ways that I can prove that I know how to do it? I have, you know, a portfolio of projects that I've completed and things that I can show employers saying, hey, I can, I can do this work. There's also a group of people, I think, that are uh, a little bit older that maybe already have had some success in another profession. And quite frankly, if you think about it, if you're, you know, if you're in your 30s and going back to school to get an, a bachelor's degree, four years can be a long time. That's a that's mm. a long time when you've got responsibilities, you've got families, mouths to feed, you know, mortgages to pay. If you can get into the cybersecurity profession with a much shorter path to get there, that's going to be very appealing to somebody, you know, who's maybe trying to pivot their career, re-career. I would imagine this is a, an opportunity for community colleges here as well to, to kind of step up and uh, provide here. Yeah, I think community colleges have played a huge role in developing the cybersecurity workforce. There's a lot of community colleges out there that they've also recognized that a lot of people, not just the not just the federal government, but there's still a lot of companies that are requiring this bachelor's degree. And so community colleges have tried to address that in the sense that helping the industry to understand what they're doing in the classroom to help students get prepared for these roles. But also they are offering up opportunities. If somebody does want to go get a bachelor's degree, many community colleges are now offering applied bachelor's degrees. And then they've also got agreements with area universities so that students can go from earning their associate's degree into completing their bachelor's degree at a university that's nearby. You know, so far, the, the reactions I've seen to this have been overwhelmingly positive. I, I suppose there was a fear that you know, the, the administration could be accused of, of trying to dumb things down or lower their standards, but uh, that doesn't seem to have been the case here. There was a really big push for many years, 20, 25 years or so, to get everybody going to a four-year university getting a bachelor's degree, there was this huge push. And we've seen sort of society kind of shift away from that now that in recognizing that not every profession or not every field requires somebody to go and get a four-year bachelor's degree. I think it's been this sort of the shift back to let's learn a skill that can help you make money so that you can support your family and also make a big difference in the world. 
For folks who are out there looking at these jobs, again, someone who's aspiring to to join this workforce, any words of wisdom here for how they should be calibrating their own journey uh, given this new reality? Yeah, I have a couple different pieces of advice. I've been teaching for a very long time, and I have a couple pieces of advice that I give people that are trying to break into this field, whether you're 18 and trying to figure out what you're going to do with your life or you're 35 and you're pivoting your career. And one thing is that if you see a job posting that you think is interesting to you and you don't meet the requirements for it, you should apply for it anyways. Uh, There's a lot of job descriptions that are written out there that the employer is asking for a unicorn and they probably know it. They're just kind of trying to see what they're going to get. So Mm -hmm. apply for those jobs anyways. And, you know, really just figure out what are those skills that you already have that are transferable. So if you go and you look at job postings that are out there, go on LinkedIn and some of these job boards and look at those job postings that are out there, you're going to see some things in there that are not necessarily technical or cybersecurity skills. You're going to see some more professional type skills, such as written communication, oral communication, giving presentations, uh, teamwork, project management, all that kind of stuff. And if you've got some work experience in another field, pull those things out of your work history and get that on your LinkedIn page, get that on your resume, be able to talk very clearly about it and about how that is a transferable skill that you can bring into the cybersecurity team at at a company that you're trying to potentially get a job in. Heather Monthy is cybersecurity workforce consultant right here at N2K Networks. Heather, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And finally, David Kahn, a renowned journalist and historian known for his groundbreaking work on cryptology, passed away at age 93 due to complications from a stroke. His fascination with cryptology began at age 13, after discovering a book on codes and ciphers. Kahn's landmark 1967 book, The Codebreakers, explored the history of secret communication, establishing him as a leading figure in the field. Despite initial resistance from the U.S. government and the NSA, his work eventually gained widespread recognition and respect. Kahn's career in journalism began at Newsday, and later included a stint at the New York Herald Tribune's Paris edition. He earned a doctorate in modern history from Oxford University, where he focused on German military intelligence in World War II, leading to his book Hitler's Spies. His other works included Seizing the Enigma and The Reader of Gentleman's Mail. Despite not being a skilled cryptanalyst himself, Hans' extensive knowledge and collection of intelligence artifacts earned him a special place in the field, 
culminating in the NSA's National Cryptologic Museum housing the David Kahn Collection. Kahn's work significantly contributed to the public's understanding of cryptology and signals intelligence. May his memory be a blessing to those who knew and loved him. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, where I contribute to a regular segment on Jason and Brian's show every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Stokes. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Keltzman. Our executive producers are Jennifer Iben and Brandon Carp. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.